Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays at voxoc.com slash live and at the Eldorado Performing Arts Center. Good morning, Vox. How are we? Good to see you all this morning. Anybody, uh, anybody been watching and following World Cup? Oh, yeah? Yeah, what's your team? Belgium? Okay. Any, uh, any Germans? Any German fans? Any Germans? <laughs> okay. It's probably true. I mean, it's, yeah. Uh, I don't, I'm not a soccer fan, but I've, I've been watching it because this is like the time where there's like not a lot of sports like that we usually watch around. So baseball season, it's like, you know, this is like eight months long, so we're barely in it. So uh, yeah, it's been good to, good to be a part of watching soccer and kind of learning if I, I have no idea what I'm, what I'm watching. But anyway. Uh, hey, welcome to Vox. A uh, couple of things about us. Uh, this is a church. This is a place, a community that believes this is the safest place to talk about anything. Uh, we really, truly believe that. So we value questions. We value feedback. Uh, we value skepticism and doubt because we feel like that's a healthy part of the natural journey to understanding God and Jesus and what does that look like. And so uh, we want to be people who are, uh, you know, connecting in that way. And so um, we have a, a number that you can text if you have questions throughout the service or um, just about anything in the or even if you're just curious about the church, you have questions, uh, feel free to text that in. Uh, would love to answer those for you. We'll take a little bit of time each service to kind of answer those questions uh, the best that we can. It's really not about having an answer to all the questions. It's really that we, we want to be a place that engages questions when people ask them. And so that's a, a big part of our value. Um, another one of our values is that we believe that as a church, as a community, as Jesus followers, that is our job not to stand in judgment of the world, but to actually serve the world world, uh, to love the people around us, because that's what we believe that Jesus did. And so as we follow him in the way that he lived his life, that's what we feel we're called to do. And then lastly, another one of our values is that we believe we're here to serve the generations, not just one particular generation. I know that it's big to talk about the next generation, but we actually believe that uh, in our midst and in our gathering is a mix of generations. And how do we meet the needs of all generations together collectively? What does the older generation have to pass on to the next generation? What does the next generation have to learn from the previous generation? Um, so those are values of our church, and uh, we hope that we are um, expressing those in a healthy way, and uh, we hope that you, this is a place that you'd want to invite others to be a part of this service. So uh, there's not any announcements really this week uh, other than Andy and I started our Facebook Live uh, podcast, and so we've been answering questions. Uh, this last week, we talked about how do we engage in healthy political conversations with our family and friends and neighbors and people that we uh, come into contact with. So if you're interested on that, uh, you can look it up on the Facebook, uh, uh, Vox Facebook page. It'll be there. Um, if you don't have Facebook, it'll be on the podcast. I think Andy's going to get it up this week. Um, so you can subscribe to it on the podcast. Is another way that you can listen to it. So anyway, uh, I think we got some questions from last week. So I'm going to answer those questions and then we'll get into the, the, the morning. Okay, question number one says, 1 John 3.2 says, when we see Jesus, we'll see him as he is and we'll be like him. Uh, I, I believe this is referring to the message that I taught last week out of 1 John for Father's Day. Um, so it's a good question. I love it because it means that somebody was actually paying attention because half the time I think everyone's just sleeping. But uh, it says, how will we be like him and why? Can you explain and reassure me? Um, this is a great, great question. So yeah, John does say this. He says, uh, we will see him as he is and we'll be just like him it's in reference to Jesus. So I think to understand this question, we have to understand sort of the overarching narrative in scripture. And if we go back to Genesis, we find that as humans, we're made in the image of God. We're made in his likeness. So there's this part of us that's connected in who we are to who God is. Uh, but because of the fall, because of sin, we have been separated from that. And so there's this idea that we're not fully in our connectedness to God. And so that's what we experience in our world today. And so the New Testament writers um, would often write about this idea that there's a time that Jesus is connecting who we are in our human body to who we will be when we connect to God with a heavenly body. And so there's this theme. Paul talks about this. Uh, but there's even a, a deeper theme and why the writers in the New Testament talked about this. Uh, Paul talks about it. John talks about it. Um, the reason is because 
in this day, in this first century, many of the Christians were experiencing intense persecution. A lot of them were witnessing their friends and their families be taken from them, ripped apart, ripped, and literally executed on the spot for their belief in Jesus. Um, because of that, there was always the hope that Christ was gonna, was gonna come again. Uh, the word in the Greek is parousia. Um, so it's the arrival that Jesus is gonna come again. And this was always meant to give and reassure those who were following Jesus in the midst of hard times, in persecution, when it felt hopeless, when there was despair setting in, that there would come a time where Jesus would come again and that we would be with him and we would see him as he actually is and we would see ourselves. So there's this idea of transformation at the heart of what John is talking about. Um, and so John is reassuring and reaffirming to those who are following Jesus that there will become a time where we will be transformed into who we were originally created to be. So it's this idea of holding out hope. Now, that isn't to say that we live in the future, right? Because sometimes the gospel has been boiled down to this idea that um, you, you believe in Christ so that you can get to heaven after you die, right? But that's actually not the gospel message. The gospel message is actually how do you get to heaven before you die? You actually can experience what it looks like to be with Jesus today, here and now. And so there's always this tension in the New Testament um, scriptures about uh, the now and the not yet. And so while they were living in the now, which was persecution, there was also coming a not yet, but there would be an arrival that Jesus would come. And so that's the essence of what John is talking about is that, uh, that there's gonna come a time where you will be transformed in who you originally created to be. Uh, now, as far as reassurance goes, John says that if you're obedient to Jesus, that if you follow the ways that Jesus is and you're, you're subjecting yourself to discipleship, to, to be a student of Jesus, uh, this is how you'll know that you'll love those around you, you'll love your neighbors as yourself. And, and so these are, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. So that's a good question. The second question is, uh, when Ronnie was speaking about the prodigal son and how the son was accepted back to the father, I wondered about God's required sacrifice from the Jews. Good question. <clears throat> I understand that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice that removes our obligation to make sacrifices, but he had not yet died. So did Jesus make and support sacrifices when he was alive? And why didn't he include the son making a sacrifice for reconciliation in the prodigal story? Great, great question. So let me just hold the question up there for a second. Let me just make sure I get everything thing. Um, yes, so Jesus was a, a Jew, a good Jew, a very good Jew. He was a, a, a devout Jew, uh, and so he would follow all of the typical obligations that a Jew would, would adhere to. So when it came to sacrifices and atonement, yes, he would adhere to those things. Uh, now, why, why the sacrifices, you ask? Well, because, you know, this is how God related to his people in a time, in a culture, in a place where people regularly sacrificed to gods, God met a people group and, and related to them and showed them this is how we can connect. Now, you remember a few weeks ago, I taught on covenant, right? And so it was always typical for a king to uh, make a covenant with lower people, vassals. So you'd have this, this relationship between kings and the lower people. Uh, and always the people who didn't follow the rules would take on the obligation of the curse of not upholding their end of the deal. But what we learn is that God actually stepped into that place and said, because I know that you can't uphold all of these, these rules, these, this law, I will be the curse. I will be the sacrifice for you, uh, which is a beautiful thing that threads all throughout scripture as you read it. Uh, and so when Jesus comes on the scene, Jesus, uh, as this person asked and said in the question, that he becomes the obligation that fulfills all of that sacrifice that was no longer necessary for us, right? Um, and so all we have to do is, is put our faith and our life in Jesus and, and, and we're, uh, we're, we're saved that way. So let me see what the other question. So um, yes, he supported sacrifices and... Oh, okay, so there's more to the question. Oh, okay. I fast twice a week and... <laughs> playing tricks on me now. Okay, so yeah, so did Jesus make and support sacrifices when he was alive? And why didn't he include the son making a sacrifice of reconciliation to the prodigal son? So the last part of that, why didn't he include the son making a sacrifice for the reconciliation of the prodigal son story? Well, remember, uh, parables were just stories to illustrate a point, which is what Jesus was doing. Uh, and so in this particular story, I don't think that the, the point of it was to talk about sacrifice. Uh, the story was about God's love and the way that he responds to us as we come back to him. But then even on another level, uh, he talks about the love that he has for us, that everything that he has has already been given to us. 
Uh, and in this story, the older son illustrates this idea that we start from a place of wholeness and completeness, uh, that if we understand that, then we don't have to worry about trying to make ourselves right before God, that we've already been made right, that everything he has is here for you. Um, and that changes sort of the way that we interact with the world and interact with God when we, when we truly embrace this idea that everything that we have um, is ours. And so uh, the reason why I don't think he talks about that is because it's not necessary in the, in the parable that he's teaching in that time. So good questions. Uh, keep them coming. If you have questions, send them in. We'd love to answer them. Uh, so anyway, without further ado, we're going to bring out Will because Will's going to be teaching this morning on Zacchaeus, which I think is going to be awesome. So uh, I will get the morning started. I'll let Will take over. Uh, Will, you ready? I'm ready. All right, buddy. It's all you. All right. Good morning, Vox. How are we today? Good. It's hard to believe that June is uh, almost over. How many of you guys are fans of the June gloom? You like the cloudy weather. Okay. How many of you would say sunny every day? Wow, there's more gloom people here. I don't know how to interpret that. Um, But summer's flying by. Um, Well, it's good to be with you this morning. I uh, am going to share a story from the scriptures today that is part of what I call the Sunday School Hall of Fame. So you have stories like Jonah and the whale, uh, Noah and the ark, and this morning we're going to look at the story of Zacchaeus. And so some of you might be scratching your heads trying to remember, okay, who is Zacchaeus again? And then others of you might have a familiar song in your head that you learned in Sunday School. How many of you guys know the Zacchaeus song? All right, who would like to sing it? Right here, right now. Is Carrie here? I feel like Carrie's probably the only one that would be willing to do that. Okay. Um, but I love the Zacchaeus story. Um, and what do, we, what do we normally think of? We think of a guy who was short, who climbed a tree, he encountered Jesus, and he was never the same. But I can't help but wonder if we've never really heard the challenge of this story or taken it to heart. Because I think embedded in this narrative are these profound truths about the human heart and about Jesus's heart and about what happens when those two collide. And uh, I invite you to turn to uh, Luke chapter 18. That's where we're going to start this morning. Luke chapter 18. If you want to either turn there or go on your phone or it'll be up on the screen. Um, But we're actually going to back up this morning And we're going to look at a parable that Jesus taught. And this parable sheds light on the Zacchaeus story. Um, And like Ronnie just shared, a parable is just a story using everyday examples that teaches a spiritual truth. And so Jesus would talk about a farmer or seeds or a fishing net. And he would use these everyday examples to teach us something uh, spiritual. And Jesus was a master at it. He's a master at teaching through stories. So let's start in Luke 18, verse 9. And we're going to take a couple insights from this parable, and they're going to prepare us for the story of Zacchaeus. So Luke 18, verse 9, should be up there. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and who looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. So hold up. Anytime in the New Testament, when the preface is there were these self-righteous people and Jesus had something he wanted to say them to them, we know it's going to be epic, right? We know that Jesus does not shy away from honesty. So here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now listen for the contrast. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And here's the conclusion of the parable. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified, bless you, before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
We could spend the whole morning on this parable, um, but I'm just gonna pull three things out, and they all start with the letter R. I'm not usually a fan of alliteration, but that's just what came to my mind. So the first one I think we can pull out is rules. That Jesus lived in a world that had clear categories and stereotypes, and you were expected to live within those stereotypes. So if you were born poor, you shouldn't act like you're rich. If you were someone who was supposed to have honor, then no one could challenge you. There were clear rules in place. And so when Jesus tells this parable, he is anticipating everyone knows the rules. The Pharisee, who was the religious leader, was supposed to be righteous and good and close to God. Everyone would just assume that. And the tax collector was assumed to be a total scumbag. And we'll talk more about that. So the first is rules. The second thing I think we can pull out is reversal. And this is both something we love about Jesus and something that's really challenging. Jesus takes those cultural stereotypes, those religious expectations, and he often reverses them. He's not willing to stay in the lane that everyone else is staying in. He actually crosses boundaries and upsets people, and he actually reverses these stereotypes. And if you'll notice, in this parable, it's the tax collector that finds forgiveness and healing. And it's the Pharisee who ends up being far from God. That was completely counterintuitive for his day and his time. And the third word is redemption. And just simply notice, because it'll be important in a minute, notice who is saved. It's a tax collector. And in the story of Zacchaeus, that's going to be very significant as we go forward. Um, And if you can throw the slide up there. this parable sort of sets the tone for a series of stories. And if you get nothing else from this morning, I would encourage you this week, read Luke 18 and 19, because you will see this reversal where Jesus kind of uh, treads in places he shouldn't culturally and religiously. You're going to see all of these stories unfolding, and we're only gonna go through Zacchaeus this morning, but look for the unique ways that Jesus' reversal goes into action. Um, But what we see here is that Jesus doesn't just teach against some of his culture's assumptions, but he acts against it. And in many ways, that's what the story of Zacchaeus is all about. Uh, We need one more thing before we dive into our story this morning, and that's this. In all of these stories, there's a common phenomenon that occurs over and over again, and it's this. It's that every time Jesus acts, the people around him, whether it's a crowd or it's his disciples, they misunderstand what he's doing and they get it wrong. Every single time, Jesus acts and it contradicts what they expected. And here's the danger for us of reading the Zacchaeus story and others like it. We assume that we are going to understand what the original disciples missed. That because we can look back in retrospect, we assume um, that we will get it when they didn't. And what I wanna suggest before we even start is that maybe, just maybe, we also miss what the original disciples missed. And sometimes when we look with retrospect, there can be this arrogance in us thinking, well, of course, we get it, we understand it. And so I just wanna say, watch Jesus closely as we read this story. Listen to him. He says and does things that we wouldn't say and do. At least I know I wouldn't say them and do them. Um, he, He acts in ways that don't come naturally to us. And if our goal is to become like him, and I I think it's possible, um, then we have to make sure that we're listening. So let's let's dive in. Um, We're gonna just go ahead to Luke 19. And here's the story of Zacchaeus. I'll just go ahead and read the whole thing, sort of as a refresher for those of us who haven't heard it in a while. Um, But here is the story. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. 
So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. So Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. Now, this whole story happens while Jesus is on a long journey to Jerusalem. And one of his last stops is the city of Jericho where he meets Zacchaeus. Um, And it's easy to miss when you read the story, but notice Jesus never intended to stop in Jericho. It was just one kind of stop on his way, but something changes his plans and he ends up entering the house of this man. Um, And to fully understand how radical Jesus is here, we have to uh, understand what the city of Jericho was expecting. So in Middle Eastern culture, as soon as they heard that a, a prophet was heading into town, the preparations would immediately begin. Hospitality is perhaps the highest value in in their culture. And so they would scramble, they would find the most honored person in town to host him and to bring him into their home and to give him food, maybe one of the leading Pharisees or some prominent person in the town. They would put their best foot forward for him. And there would be this disappointment when they realized, oh, he's just passing through. We're not gonna have the opportunity to show him really the hospitality that is fitting for a prophet. And so as Jesus reaches the outskirts of town, there's probably a little sense of disappointment um, that they're not gonna get to do that. And then we meet Zacchaeus, and we're immediately told really just two things about him, his profession and his financial status. He was a tax collector, and he was wealthy. And um, this is familiar territory for us, Tax collectors in the ancient world, especially to Jews, were hated. Why? Because Jews were under Roman occupation. Um, Rome often treated them harshly. Every day a Jew woke up was a reminder, you're not free. Yes, you have some freedoms to live your life, but ultimately there's an entire civilization standing over you that owns you. And so Rome was a machine. How do you run an enterprise that vast? Well, you need money. How do you get money? You collect taxes. So Rome had this extensive tax system. Hey, some things never change, right? And so um, what they would do is they would hire tax farmers, as they were called. They would hire local people, in this case, a Jew named Zacchaeus, and they would commission them to collect taxes. And a simple explanation of how it would work, Rome would say, okay, tax farmer, I want you to collect $3 from every family. Two of those dollars goes to us, the Roman government. You can keep one. And what tax farmers would do is they would say, I'm gonna up my price to $4 per family. I'll give Rome its two, so they'll be none the wiser, and then I'm gonna take two for myself. So they would exploit and they would extort because they had the authority of the, the Roman government behind them, and Jews or any other subjugated people couldn't stand up to them. Okay, how are we doing so far? We good? Yeah. Okay. And so, have you guys ever been scammed? Have you ever been ripped off? Uh, a couple years ago, Emily ordered me this mug online, and it was supposed to have the outline of Arizona, that's my home state, with some writing on it for my birthday. So she orders this mug, and then it shows up, and it it looked like a four-year-old had taken a Sharpie and sort of etched something on the side of this mug that maybe could have been Arizona, really could have been any state. It was very ambiguous. And you know, it's frustrating when you have experiences like that. Now imagine someone rips you off to the point that your grocery budget for your family for the next couple months is wiped out. Someone takes that from you or imagine that you are scammed out of your mortgage payment. You can't make it. Imagine the level of frustration. So Zacchaeus lives in this town as a Jew. I just imagine the the people walking by his house, smelling the, the feasts and the food that were being prepared in his home, realizing that he had paid for that food with their stolen money while their kids were at home starving. That's the kind of man he was. 
Um, He was an extremely hated man living on the spoils while his own people suffered. And so thus far in the story, Zacchaeus is living perfectly into the stereotype of his culture. And he was absolutely despised. Then we get to verse three and it says this. Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So we're told he was a short guy. Now normally the explanation for this is it was just a height issue, okay? Um, That he couldn't see over the other heads in the crowd. He had to find another solution. And so he moves on and, and climbs a tree. But I want us to look a little bit deeper into why Zacchaeus couldn't see over this crowd. So as I mentioned earlier, the reason Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem was because of the Jewish feast of Passover. Um, It was the biggest annual Jewish feast. And you'll probably remember, but Passover was the time every year when Jews celebrated that moment in history where God broke in and he rescued them from who? The Egyptians. They were slaves and God broke in and he crushed their oppressors and he freed them. And this every year was what the Jews were celebrating. But now they're again under Roman slavery. And so this time of year was a time when anti-Roman enthusiasm was at an all-time high. Um, And not only that, but now rumors are floating around that this prophet Jesus could be the Messiah. He could be the king that's going to finally overthrow Rome and restore freedom, just like God did back in the days of Exodus and the Passover. And so this is a dangerous time throughout Israel. It's a time that's perfect for revolution. Roman soldiers were on high, high alert. In fact, they would send more soldiers into Jerusalem over the Passover, fearing that there'd be an uprising or some kind of a revolt. And there was even a a group of Jews called zealots who were essentially terrorists who would perform these ambushes and public murders to try to ignite passion for, for Jewish freedom. And so Zacchaeus can't enter the crowd not just because he's short, but because he represents everything that the Jews hate more than anything in the world. He represents the Roman government. And it's, it, it would be dangerous for him to push through the crowd while they're hailing a prophet they think could be their king. And being a snake has its drawbacks. And in Jericho, Zacchaeus' list of friends is pretty short. And so it's here that the story takes an unexpected turn. Zacchaeus does two things that no prominent, wealthy Middle Eastern man would ever do. He runs and he climbs a tree. So there's an amazing scholar named Kenneth Bailey who for 30 years taught theology in the Middle East and he just observed the culture and he just saturated in the culture. And one thing he said is even today, no respectable Middle Eastern man would ever run in public. And then Zacchaeus also climbs a tree, which to us, no big deal, right? Dads, you'd climb a tree with your kids. We even build tree houses. What's the big deal? Um, But again, it's helpful for us to see these dynamics at work. So Zacchaeus climbs a tree. What's, What's the problem with that? Well, again, it's undignified. It's shameful. You wouldn't do it. Um, there's an amazing story I came across where a former U.S. ambassador who served under John Kennedy, uh, he was serving in Cairo. And one day that there, on this particular night, they were going to have a party in this backyard area. And so um, this U.S. ambassador noticed some string lights that weren't quite right. And he decided that he needed to fix them for the party. So to get up to reach them, he climbs this tree, gets them straightened out for the party. Everything's good. And apparently someone had seen him do this. And later that evening, the president of Egypt himself uh, questioned him about it in front of this group of people. And he said, Did, is the story true? People are telling me that you, you climbed a tree. Can you verify this? And he was so shocked that an American dignitary 
would do something like that. Um, it, it was shameful and it was embarrassing. And so even today, something like this would be shocking to, to certain groups of people. And yet Zacchaeus climbs this tree. I have a picture um, of a sycamore fig tree. And this is kind of cool. This is in Jericho. Someone just snapped a shot of, of this man who climbed up in a tree. But you can kind of picture what Zacchaeus might have looked like as he was up there. But one thing's for sure. It wasn't just to gain a, a solid angle of, of Jesus passing by. Zacchaeus's hope was to stay hidden in the thick leaves, in the branches, and he had no idea that not only would Jesus see him, but that his life would never be the same again. And then the moment happens. After all of his scrambling and looking and straining and running and climbing, Jesus finally passes by. And there's noise, there's dust, all the questions and people's agendas are swirling around Jesus as he makes his way out of Jericho. And then he stops and he looks up into the tree. And for the first time, his eyes and Zacchaeus' eyes meet. And have you ever asked yourself, how did Jesus see Zacchaeus, for one, in the midst of all this chaos? And how did he know his name? Now, it's possible that Jesus was just being Jesus. As God, he always had these insights that no human could have possibly known, and, and that could be the case here. But my thoughts are, again, that there's more going on here than maybe meets the eye. Um, that maybe there's this hostile scene developing around the sycamore fig tree. That as the crowd moves with Jesus and they get to the tree that maybe somebody spotted this hated man up on a branch watching the scene below. And when they saw him, they realized that they had him cornered in a shameful and embarrassing place. And that this hated man could be outed. And maybe even some self-righteousness started welling up as more and more people started notice, noticing this man trapped up there in a tree that the insults started to fly and questions were asked like, what are you doing here, thief? What part do you think you have in the freedom of the Jews or in this prophet? Maybe the four-letter word started flying up at Zacchaeus as he was stranded. And the commotion gets Jesus' attention. As he's making his way through town, he hears these insults, he sees what's going on, and he makes a decision. And as he stops and looks up at the man, I imagine that all of this crowd is just eagerly waiting. Finally, this tax collector, this scoundrel, has been spotted, and they're waiting for the rebuke to come. And again, we know that Jesus never shies away from speaking his mind, and so they're expecting Jesus to say, repent, you sinner, you hypocrite, you fill your pockets at the expense of your own people. Come down and quit your job. Go to the temple and purify yourself. Turn from your ways, you snake. That's what they're expecting. But instead of humiliation, Jesus gives an invitation. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I must stay at your house today. And suddenly the mood shifts in the crowd. Their smiles and their eager anticipation melts into frowns and anger because Jesus had just shattered the religious status quo. He was expected as a prophet to stay with the most wealthy and important person in town, not Jericho's number one extortionist. And they're furious. This isn't how a Messiah is supposed to ask or supposed to act. A true prophet would not hang out with someone like this. And remember I said, watch Jesus closely. Why is it, do you think, that he invites Zacchaeus down from his hiding place? Why is it that Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house? Why is it that Jesus offers him the honor that everyone else in town wanted, the opportunity to host and show hospitality to him? And to answer that question, I wanna take us to 
Isaiah chapter 53, verse five. This is a prophecy that was written about Christ around 700 years before he ever walked to the earth. And this is what it says about him. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. See, I think Jesus' decision to invite Zacchaeus down from the tree is a picture of the gospel. Jesus sees the hostility and the hatred pointed at Zacchaeus and he places it on himself. He's willing to share in Zacchaeus' suffering even though Jesus has done nothing to earn it. And he says, Zacchaeus, I'm gonna give you the honor of hosting me even though everyone in this city is going to hate me because of it. And I'm willing to do that because of my love for you. And as the two of them walked down the road together towards Zacchaeus' house, I imagine that more than a few people decided that they had seen enough of this wannabe prophet from Galilee. Because certainly he wouldn't hang out with someone like that. And here we have to pause. Because I, I think there's a Jonah mentality that lives in all of us. We know that we've been given grace and forgiveness that we don't deserve, and yet we still sometimes think and pray, God, but please not Nineveh. God, how can you give your grace to them or to him or to her? And sometimes the mentality of the crowd is is what is alive and well in us. And we're quickly on board with God helping widows and orphans and the helpless and the weak. But what happens when God extends his hand to cheaters and liars and swindlers and our enemies? What happens when we try to be the gatekeepers of grace and we say, God, I know how to give it out and when to withhold it? What happens when God rips that entitlement from our hands and says, I want you to love them? the very person that you don't want to love. And so I wanna ask you a difficult question. Who do you exclude from grace? Who do you not want God to save? Could it be that the neighbors that we secretly complain about because they park in our parking spot or they blast loud music or they smoke and it annoys us, could it be that instead of talking behind their back, Jesus invites us to lovingly speak to their face, to invite them over for dinner? Could it be that that family member who you want nothing to do with because they've burned bridges and they've been hurtful and everyone else in the family has long turned their back on them, could it be that they desperately need the touch and the love of Jesus? Could it be that we need to stop crossing our arms where Jesus opens his? I think that's at the heart of the Zacchaeus story. And that kind of sacrificial love is compelling. But if we're honest, we're more tempted to nod in agreement with it, to admire it from afar, but not to live it out. But we're not spectators of Christ, we're followers. And maybe what really separates us from them is not their badness or their sinfulness. Maybe it's our pride and our discomfort and our fear. And I don't say this naively, thinking it's easy. I mean, how do we possibly give grace to people who it's the last thing that we wanna do? Are we just supposed to muster our strength and enforce it? I mean, how do we give grace when hurtful words have been spoken that keep replaying through our minds that continue to cut us deeply? when we've been wounded by people? How do we give grace to someone who we feel like we've tried again and again with no no fruit to show for it? How do we give grace when someone is so different that we're afraid? They speak differently, they look differently, they act differently. We we haven't the first clue how to step in. And we're, we're quick to turn to our reasons why we shouldn't rather than embracing the example of Christ. These are hard questions. Um, And friends and Vox community, if we're looking for a reason to love, 
those who have wounded us, the Zacchaeuses in our life, we'll never find those reasons within ourselves and we'll never find a good reason out there in the world somewhere. There's only one source for that kind of costly love. A few moments um, in the story before Jesus ever reaches Jericho, before he ever sees Zacchaeus, he says this to his disciples. We are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. How did Jesus respond to a world of stingy grace givers? By pouring out his life for them unto death. And when we allow that unbelievable generosity of God to replace our stinginess, something amazing happens. Look at the beautiful response that Zacchaeus has. He says, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And as the church, we, we get so easily caught up in, well, we gotta clean this person up before they're fit to come in, before they're fit for our company, but that's not our job. That's his job. And when someone stares Jesus in the face and experiences the precious and costly gift of his grace, they will be changed. We will be changed. In fact, if we are here, it's only a testimony to the fact that God was willing to overlook all of the times we have lied and cheated and stolen to bring us into the family and thank God he doesn't follow our rules. Thank God he doesn't see the world through our eyes because if he did, not one of us would be standing here. I would never be here if that wasn't the case. And then look at what Jesus says to this man. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save what was lost. Jesus says, salvation has come just as you are, crook and all. You found life. He calls him a son of Abraham in front of this group of hostile Jews Son of Abraham being a term of belonging, Jesus calls this hated outsider an insider. That he's part of the family. And then there's those beautiful final words that Jesus speaks. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Do you guys know what the name Zacchaeus means? It means pure clean. And maybe for the first time in his life, Zacchaeus believed he could live up to that name. For the first time, he saw his sin and his life for what it actually was, and he was freed from all of that. I'm going to close with a story, and it's one of those stories that is so beautiful and so profound that I know I can't do it justice, but it's a story that is worth telling. And I think as we struggle to figure out, Lord, how do I love my enemies? How do I expand my vision of your kingdom to include those who I'm determined to exclude? This is a story that has shaped my heart. It's the story of a man named John Perkins. John, um, he's still living, I think he's in his 80s. Um, he was an African-American civil rights activist back in the 1960s, deep in the South in the state of Mississippi. He had moved to California a couple years before the story I'm about to share, and things in California have always been a little more progressive. Racism was far less harsh. But despite this sort of safer environment here, he felt God's tug to move back to Mississippi where he grew up and to face uh, the, the hatred there. 
um, and to follow God's call in his life. And so this is how John showed Jesus' love in the state of Mississippi back in the 60s. He started Bible studies in schools. He led peaceful civil rights marches. He opened preschools to keep kids off the street. He created programs to repair dilapidated houses in the ghetto. He helped black citizens register to vote for the first time in many of their lives. And then one night, John got a call. He got a call that informing him 19 college students, good friends of his, kids he was mentoring, had been arrested on their way home from a peaceful civil rights march earlier that day. And despite his wife's worried expression, John knew he had to go down to the jail to try to see if he could help these students. Unjust beatings were really common, especially deep in the South in those days, so he was worried for their safety. And he had no idea as he left the house that night that he was walking into a trap that had been intentionally set for him. And he even describes arriving at this prison late at night And the first officer to greet him had a warm smile on his face. And he says, in retrospect, I should have known right then it was a little too friendly. Um, Before he knew it, he was jumped by a dozen or so officers and other officials of that city. And for the entire evening was beaten and tortured for hours in ways that I, I don't think I could get through explaining to you. And as he thinks back on that night, he writes this. Later on, when doctors examined me, they found that the beatings I had sustained had done a lot of damage to my stomach, which led to surgery a year later. It was hard when my wife brought the children to the hospital to see me after surgery. That was almost more than I could bear. I remember specifically the reactions of two of my children when they saw me. Derek, who was just a little guy, threw himself on the foot of my bed and sobbed. It hurt him so badly to see what they had done to his daddy. Joni, who was 14, just went stiff. She could not stand it and had to leave the room. So John describes lying in this hospital bed with these images of the hate shown to him replaying over and over in his mind. Times he'd been beaten without cause. Names he'd been called. Times his reputation had been slandered. Times his family had been threatened verbally and physically. And with all of these images swirling around in his head, he writes this. Stronger than all these images playing through my mind was another powerful, soul-stirring, body-shaking scene, and that was the image of the Son of God dying on the cross of Calvary. I saw him bruised and battered, his back torn apart by the brutal whipping he had endured. His hands and feet pierced through with huge spikes and blood running down his face from a crown of thorns that had been pushed onto his head by a bloodthirsty group of Roman soldiers. I saw Christ as he felt so alone and abandoned that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet Christ looked at those who had treated him cruelly and prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the Holy Spirit would not let that image leave me. He seemed to be whispering to me again and again, John, you've got to love them. But I don't want to love them. Look what they've done to me. There was that image of Christ. Father, forgive them. I simply could not get it to leave me alone. How can I love them, Lord? Let me love them through you. And that is exactly what happened. The love of God began to take from my soul every bit of anger and hatred. And the only way that I can describe it is to tell you that I was overwhelmed by the love of God. And as his love and joy coursed through my spirit and soul, I knew that there was no way I could keep that love from overflowing to the people around me. White people, black people, any other kind of people, it did not matter. God loved them all and so did I. That is what Jesus is calling us to. The same 
love that beckoned Zacchaeus down from a tree, the same love that filled the heart of an abused and tortured man who was innocent, points us back to the very Son of God himself who endured unbelievable suffering, being one who had never sinned. In Vox, if we will watch and listen and absorb the love of Jesus, there's Zacchaeus moments waiting for all of us. There are people in your life that you may want nothing to do with, yet God wants to use you as an instrument of reconciliation. He wants your love and my love and our grace to be so unexpected and so counterintuitive that it melts the cynicism and hate in those around us. And our lead, our opener is always this. I am Zacchaeus. I am one who is messed up. I am still in process. I don't get it right. I am not righteous, but thankfully, I stand under a savior who is, who declares me to be righteous. Zacchaeus moments are possible, but are we willing to embrace them? Let me pray for us. Lord God, we are so thankful that your love extends beyond the borders of our own understanding and our own willingness. God, we are all testimonies of how far your grace is willing to go. Shake us from our comfort, God, and our self-righteousness. Soften our hearts. Lord, we wanna live each breath reflecting the love that we've just heard about, but we need your help. So we ask you, God, to help us. And we ask this in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. In the hours ahead, seek to follow Jesus. There is good news. God does not draw near to us because of how good we are, but because of his love. I can think of no better words to leave us with today than this amazing good news that comes from Romans 5. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if... When we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You guys have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.